Okay, let's gather back in, get your coffee. Okay, we have reached the end of the Bible. We are in Revelation chapter 22 this morning, and we are just going to be looking at the first few verses, verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 22. Next week we will finish the book, and then have a week of summary, and then it will be Thanksgiving and Christmas. Crazy. So this morning, Revelation 22, we are going to read down uh, verses 1 through 5. If you would follow me as I read. The Word of God says the following, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Lord, we look forward to what you have for us this morning in these few short verses, and we know that it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be amazing as you relate to us the very end of all things and what our eternal destiny shall be for those of us who love you and who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, speak to us today. Build us up in our faith and encourage us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come down to the end of the scriptures, we find John now continuing along in this vision that uh, the angel is showing him. And now he's reached this place where um, he's showing him this uh, river in the city of God in the New Jerusalem and the Crystal City. Remember last week, if you were with us, we described how the city was built and how the Lord has done this amazing architecture in building this city. We talked about the scale of the city, uh, how many square miles are in it according to the calculations. Just, and we did all that to sort of show how God has made a place for us and he's fulfilled that promise that Jesus made that he would go and prepare a place for us. And he said in his father's house would be many dwelling places. And uh, we shared, just to remind you, we get something like 75 acres apiece which is pretty cool, and uh, God is just, you know, a master creator, and it's interesting that as we enter chapter 22, this last chapter of the Bible, just to give you a scale and a panorama, we bridge about 16 centuries of biblical history. As we uh, start the Bible in Genesis 1-1, and we end up here in Revelation 22-21, Remember, there are um, 40 authors who wrote the 66 books of the Bible over a period of roughly 1,500 or so years. So 1,600 years of history being summed up as we enter chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. And so in verse 1, the angel revealed to John this pure river of water of life, 
clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What an amazing thing that, as John has been describing this city to us, remember he kept describing this crystal clear city and and the different ways that the glass and the pavement looked and the, the gems and the atmosphere. And now he shows a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal. I don't know if you've ever been out in nature and been able to experience crystal clear water where you could look in and you couldn't tell where the surface of the water began and you could just see down as as far as the eye could see because it was so clear. It's so amazing to see those things. And here, this, this river of the water of life proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb is very symbolic for us. It's real and it's symbolic all at the same time. In Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5, we find this reference. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. It's one of the gladdest things on earth to have water. There is nothing in all the world so precious to the eye and the imagination of the inhabitant of the dry, burning, and thirsty as a plentiful supply of bright, pure, and living water. One commentator says, The point of this river is to let us know that in heaven there shall be no want of anything that can make the saints happy. This river corresponds to the present believer's experience of the outflow of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus promised that when he left and he would go back home to be with his father, he was relating to his disciples that he was, while both spirit and truth, while both spirit and flesh, that he can only be in one place at one time as long as he inhabited his physical body. But when he would go back to be with the father, he would send the Holy Spirit who would testify of him. And he said the spirit would point, him, point everyone and everything to him. And Jesus had already told us multiple times throughout his ministry that he points to the Father. But Jesus said that when the spirit of God would come, he would give us living water. In fact, Jesus said those words, of course, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 where he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember in John chapter 7, where Jesus was at that great feast, and it says, On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as we see this picture here in Revelation twenty-two twenty-one, this picture of the river of living water coming forth from the very throne of God. This reminds us that God desires for us to have a river of living water feeding into us his word and his Holy Spirit, and that in like manner, as God fills us up, there should be an outflow of the overflow of God's work in us. And it says in John 7, 39, but this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'd like to ask you a question this morning and sort of make a statement. The quality of life we live on this earth 
depends upon whether or not our life does indeed flow from the river of the throne of God and of the Lamb. You know, Jesus has given all of his believers the right and the access for the asking the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the question is, have we received it? And by that, I mean not just have we received the Holy Spirit at salvation. Scripture is very clear that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But he talks about this filling of the Spirit, this river of living water that comes into us and then flows out of us. Do we have this quality of life, that there is this river of life flowing from the throne of God coming into our lives? And what does that look like? Are we spending time with God? Are we allowing him to fill us up with his word? Do you ask, Lord, fill me with your spirit? You see, he wants us to do that. He wants our attitude to always be, Lord, I want more. Lord, I need more of you. Lord, I am not sufficient in and of myself. And even though you've saved me and I thank you for that and you've given me your grace and I love you for that and you've poured out your mercy and I'm grateful for that and you've shed your blood to cover my sins for which I am eternally thankful, I need you as long as I am in this heavenly tent. I need you to fill me up with your Holy Spirit. I need your heart and your mind. How many times did Paul tell us things like we need the mind of Christ? We need to have a heavenly-minded attitude and mindset. Is our attitude about our walk with Christ that we just have fire insurance? Is he just our Savior, or is he our Savior and our Lord? You know there are many masters in this world, or would-be masters. Who or what is your master? You can determine this by looking at where you spend the bulk of your time and your money. That's a good indicator for all of us. There are lots of masters and lots of idols in this world. We can name a few of the obvious ones, drugs, alcohol, sex, hobbies, sports, family, spouses, children, our work, our job, our career, cars, electronics, technology. How would you answer the question, I am most passionate about blank? How would you fill in that blank? What is it that drives your passions? Or maybe a different way of saying it, what is it that most defines me? And fill in that blank. Do we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us? You see, it was a rare occasion when Jesus walked this earth to marvel at faith. You remember the centurion who came to Jesus? And as he came to Jesus, he said, Lord, if you just say the word, you don't need to come. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at that centurion's faith, and he he was discussing with him, how is it that you have this faith? And he says, well, I'm a man under authority, and I understand what it means. If if the, the master, if the commander gives an order... It is so, it happens. It, it must take place because it was ordered. And he said, I know if you say the word, it will be so. Jesus marveled at that man's faith. But then at the, the end of uh, the Gospels, as we come to Luke chapter 18, Jesus spoke a parable about a judge who did not fear God or regard man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him and, and said, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not 
for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So the question for us regarding this river of life is is this river of life flowing into my life? And is it feeding me and filling me and making me whole? And is that the point of my ministry? You see, God desires that we each have a ministry. And the word ministry just means service. He's going to talk about that in a few minutes, that one day we will be serving him eternally in heaven. But here on this earth, he desires that we have a ministry of service while we are here on this earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote these words, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight in this life. He wants us each to have some form of service to him. And that's why the scriptures are replete with the Proverbs, which give us wisdom on how we should live. You know, I was thinking about this. I was in a, a shop, uh, actually a coffee shop where I frequent. And as I was coming out, I almost ran into someone who was going in. So I stopped and pulled back the door, you know, to make the way for them. You know, and I think, at least in my experience here, that's not a common thing. Usually people just kind of blow by you and let the door slam in the next person's face. But the little things that we do, you know, we might put them under the heading of good manners, and you don't have to be a Christian to have good manners. But certainly we as believers of all people should have good manners, shouldn't we? And we just do the little things like that. And then as they pass by and they say, thank you for holding the door, just to say a simple little, God bless you today. You see, our ministry can be even in the simplest things. And God wants us to love him so much and to be so filled up with himself as this river of life that one day we will live in the midst of, even now flows into our lives and fills us up with all the fullness of God that we might be lights, as Paul said in the book of Philippians, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. You know, we can watch the news, we can complain about the way the world is going and how difficult things are and all that. But the bottom line is God has put us here for this time and this place. You and I were not born for this moment by coincidence. God put us here for a reason. In verse 2 of Revelation 22, it says, In the middle of its street, describing the heavenly Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I want to read this to you from two other translations and then talk about something that seems a little weird when you read this. The NASB says, In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And the King James Version says, in the midst of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And here's an explanation. Because of its somewhat obscure presentation, this has caused some difficulty to understand. The picture is that the river flows through the middle of the city, and the tree is large enough to span the river so that the river is in the midst of the street. The tree actually is on both sides of the river. Its root and its trunk on one side, but its branches extend over the river to the other side. And it would appear that the river is not a broad body of water, but a clear stream sufficiently narrow to allow for this arrangement. We mention that because when you read this here in verse 2, it says on the, the tree was on either side of the river as you read that. So it makes you, you wonder how could the tree be on both sides of the river unless the tree was in the middle of the river and all that. And so the commentators attempt to explain it by saying, and I'm sure we've seen this, right? A tree growing beside a river, but its branches are big enough that it spans both sides of the river because of the, the expanse of, of its trunk and how far it, it hangs over. Now, it's interesting, some people wonder as we get to this verse here, as it talks about the, the 12 fruits and that the 12 fruits are born, uh, basically one fruit per month. And so basically this tree is in perpetual bloom. So God here, in a sense, sort of defies what we understand. You know, there's a season and things, you know, bear its fruit. You know, our gardens and apple trees and all those things, they have a, one crop per year usually. Sometimes they might have two. But in this case, God is giving us the picture that the tree of life, which we're going to get to in a moment, was last seen in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. We'll get to that in a moment. That the tree of life, as it perpetually bears fruit, is going to be there for our enjoyment. And then, of course, he talks about the, the leaves being for the healing of the nations. Now, some people have wondered, will we be eating in heaven? Anybody like to eat? I mean, some of us, you know, we like to eat, you know, for nourishment, and that's good, but it's, that's just a few of us. That's the minority, to be honest, right? Some of us like to eat because we like food. We like certain kinds of food. The best answer is that we can eat, but we will not have to. In his resurrection body, Jesus enjoyed food. We see this in the Gospels. Angels ate with Abraham in Genesis 18 by the trees of Mamre. The great heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people was described to us as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there, of course, we will enjoy an incredible meal. And even though man fell by what he ate when he partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil when he shouldn't have, God will still allow us to eat in heaven. And remember that in the temple there was the golden table of showbread which ever stood in the ancient tabernacle and temple for the priests to eat, so the tree of life stands in all the golden streets of the new Jerusalem with its monthly fruit for the immortal king priests of heaven. Now, as we've now run into this tree of life that we haven't seen since Genesis chapter 3, let me give you sort of a picture of paradise lost and paradise regained, which is what is being described here in this section of scripture. Paradise was lost in the Garden of Eden, there was a river in Genesis chapter 2. There was the tree of life also mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. 
There was human innocence mentioned in Genesis 2, yet that innocence was spoiled by sin in Genesis chapter 3. There was a sun and the moon that was described to us during the creation of Genesis 1. There was redemption promised in Genesis 3. And then there was banishment from the presence of God and from the garden that he had created in Genesis chapter 3. But here in Revelation 22, paradise regained. There is a river of life. There is a tree of life. Humanity has been redeemed. There is no sin that is allowed to enter this holy place. There is no need of the Son because the, the Lamb himself is the Son. Redemption has been fully realized and we have an eternal residence. So everything that broke down and fell apart in the book of Genesis in the very beginning of all time is now fully redeemed here in Revelation chapter 22. So back in Genesis chapter 2, we find that first tree of life. Then in Genesis 3, it's mentioned again, but then uh, the tree of life is not what man ate of. He ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God had to put an angel to guard the tree of life so that man in his sinful state would not eat of the tree of life and be perpetually then in his sinful state forever and ever. So remember, God in Genesis 3.24 drove man out. He placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And here again, from Genesis 3.24 to Revelation 22, we find finally the tree of life being opened up and we are given access in the heavenly kingdom to the tree of life, which God did originally intend for man to eat of, but not in his sinful state. And finally, in our redeemed state, as the blood of Christ has cleansed us, as, as we have been made like Christ, as, as sin has been done away with. And Paul gives us hints of these things in Romans 8, where he says, one day when our unredeemed mortality is redeemed. You see, we've already been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but our experience, as long as we live in this earth, we're still subject to the difference between the flesh and the spirit. But in our heavenly bodies, when we are forever in the presence of Christ, our earthly bodies have gone, our heavenly bodies have come. We have our resurrection bodies. We are in now a perfect eternal state, and our sin is gone. Our desire for sin is gone. And now we are free in the presence of God to drink of that river of living water coming forth from his, his throne and to eat of the fruit of the tree of life that God has intended for us. Do you remember in Psalm chapter 1? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. What a foreshadowing of a promise in Psalm 1, verse 3, fulfilled here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. Even though this great chapter of the Bible tells us of heaven, we should think deeply about it and take in now what we can. We do not suppose that a man shooting at a target is, is shooting at a target unless he looks toward that target to see where it is. Nor can we imagine that a man's ambition is fixed on heaven if he has no heavenward thoughts or aspirations. Meaning that we should be thinking about heaven. We should be longing for the day 
that we can forever be in his presence, that we should be longing for the day where Revelation 21 and 22 is where we live. I don't know if you ever think of heaven, but let me ask you this morning to consider what are your thoughts of heaven? How often do you think of heaven? I know I've been experiencing this last year and a half or so as I'm getting older, as my parents have died, as disease has come, as health begins to fail, these things make you think more of heaven, and they should. We are told that this tree bears 12 fruits, one fruit per month. There is a perpetual blooming and feeding of God's people. But we're also told that these, this tree, the tree of life, has leaves that were intended for the healing of the nations. The word healing used there is a very interesting word. The word is therapia. You might guess from the word that it talks about therapy. And if you just look at the definition, it says a service rendered by one to another, special medical services for curing and healing, or a body of attendants, servants, and domestics. Uh, so one of the scholars, who's a Greek scholar, said the word for healing from which we get the English word therapeutic, almost directly transliterated from the Greek, uh, rather than me meaning healing, should be understood as health giving. So the leaves on this tree are there for the health of the people. Now you might say, why do we need that if we're in our perfect resurrected bodies? And God has all the bases covered. In fact, it says here for the nations, the word nations is ethnos, but it's to be understood as referring to the Gentiles. And it's interesting, when you think about the, the, the whole expanse of the plan of redemption, God, of course, gave the plan of redemption to his people, the Jewish people, but he always intended that the Jewish people would also evangelize and bring in the Gentiles. And God meant for there to be a people who were blessed who would evangelize the other people and bring them into the kingdom. Do you see the pattern? And while we have not replaced Israel by any stretch of the imagination, we've talked about that, God in like manner for his church has said to us today that we also, through the calling of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, should be sharing the message of the good news of the gospel of grace with other people, calling them into the kingdom of God. In fact, in that passage I told you a couple of weeks ago to read, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it says there that we who are gent believing Gentiles have been grafted in to the nation of Israel. So you see the picture, the image is consistent throughout. And so this tree that has the, the fruit and then the, the leaves for the healing of the nations, even there in heaven, God is bringing us all together, Jew and Gentile. And we're told all throughout the scriptures in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor barbarian, Scythian, all those things. But in Christ, we are all one. So it is truly amazing to me as we think about these things how God serves us. I want to say it again. It's amazing how God serves us. In the heavenly city, God has set it up in such a way that we are to be there to fully enjoy his presence. He is going to bless us with every benefit you can possibly imagine. He is going to give us an eternal source of water. He is going to give us an eternal source of food. He is go going to give us an eternal source of healing and blessing and refreshing. And anything that's ever been wrong in our lives, God will have fully 
covered it and healed it and made it new. Remember back in chapter 21, uh, we looked at, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 4, and God will have wiped away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. All things have been made new. Again, the foreshadowing. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, If any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. There's the spiritual reality of the heaven reality, heavenly reality. And in Revelation 21, we find the picture that it's real, that it's true, that it's been fulfilled. Not just spiritually, but literally, physically, all things have been made new. Now as we come to verse 3 of Revelation 22, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So again, back in Genesis 3, the curse entered humanity. When Eve and Adam fell, God brought the curse of sin upon them, and he had to drive them from the garden. Remember, he said to Eve that, the curse would be realized in, on her by the bearing of, the, the, of children and the pain of childbirth. And then it said that her desire would be for her husband. And in like manner, now we enter this marital problem where, where we try to rule over each other. And then he said that it would also be the curse of the ground where we would have to till the ground and the ground would now yield thorns where it should be yielding fruit. And so part of the curse is this struggle that we have in life. And the struggle that we have relationally. And here he says in Revelation 22.3, under the heading of paradise regained, that there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The picture here is very simple. In the presence of God, there can be no sin. None. It can't be tolerated, and it won't be tolerated. And for those of us who are there by the blood of Christ, and that's the only way you get to that point, is by the blood of Christ, we will be forever in the presence of God. And it says here that his servants shall serve him. Heaven will be a place of work and service for God's people. However, this is a picture of the pure blessedness of service rather than arduous, curse-stained toil. One person said it this way, Heaven is not a place of indolent leisure, but a place where service is done centering on God. Another one stated it this way, There is no greater privilege believers can have in the eternal kingdom than to be servants of the Lord. Who would want to live in eternal idleness and uselessness? This is a picture of blessedness and service rather than arduous toil. And his servants, another person said, shall serve him as a great encouragement to us. For in heaven our service will be perfect. As we seek to serve the Lord here on earth, we are constantly handicapped by sin and weakness. But all hindrances will be gone when we get to glory. Perfect service in a perfect environment. In my opinion, similar to that of worship, we should learn to serve God here, now, as practice for heaven. Just as with our worship, we should work, work on perfecting our worship as much as we can, which is really the attitude of our hearts toward the Lord, now on earth, for the day when we see him face to face in heaven. 
In Revelation 22, 4, it says here, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. I cannot imagine what it will be like to be able to see the face of God. Yet that will be our destiny. Do you understand that the picture of being face to face with someone is a picture of very close intimacy? You see, we might have face to face meetings and conversations with people, but the picture, the idea here, is not like a business meeting where you sit across the table and you're, quote, face to face to somebody. The idea is one of very close relationship. One person said this, I understand this phrase, they shall see his face, to be the following. I understand two things. First, they shall literally and physically be with their risen bodies, actually looking into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ so as to understand him, his work, his love, his all in all as they have never understood him before. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote these words, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you remember that way back with Moses when he met God at the burning bush? Exodus chapter 3, it says, So when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. You see, on that day, we will not be afraid to look upon God. But then remember later when Moses was up on the mountain and he was fellowshipping with God and God was giving him the Ten Commandments and speaking to him. Moses was so enamored with what he was experiencing of the presence of God that he said in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, God, please show me your glory. And then he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I mean, that's the closest any man has ever gotten to seeing the glory of God as God would reveal it to us until Jesus came. And we're even told that we will be allowed to be with him on this day in Revelation 22 to see him as he truly is. 1 Corinthians 13 says that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. In other words, there shall be some kind of transcendent knowledge that shall become ours. 
And in 1 John chapter 3, it says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, there's going to be a point where we meet him. We'll meet him at some point when we die, if that all happens before the rapture and we go and we be with the Lord. We're going to to see him at the second coming. We're going to be there in his presence through all those things. We'll be there in the millennial kingdom. But I believe, as we read 1 John 3, it says we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that on that day, in Revelation 22, when we are forever in his presence in the eternal heavenly city of God, the new Jerusalem, that in that moment, in those days, as we are there with him forever and ever, something will happen, something will transpire, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John goes on to punctuate in 1 John 3, 3. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And the point here in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 is this. This is the heavenly reality that one day we will see him and be like him and everything that's ever been cloudy in our minds will be made pure and clear and we will understand that he's saying if we have this hope, if we truly believe this word, then we will purify ourselves and be ready for the imminent return of Christ whenever that may be, but that everyone in every generation would be ready and we purify ourselves and we live in that manner so that we are pleasing to him in case he shows up at any moment. In that day, there will be nothing that obscures our vision of Jesus. No more sin. No more worries and cares. No more idols. Nothing to distract us. This will be the greatest glory of heaven, to know God, to know Jesus more intimately and wonderfully than we ever could on earth. It is the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall there see Jesus. We will get to look into the face of Christ, and this signifies that we will be well acquainted with his person, his office, his character, his work, so the saints in heaven shall have more knowledge of Christ than the most advanced who live below. As one has said, the babe in Christ admitted to heaven discovers more of Christ in a single hour than is known by all of the divines of the assemblies of the church on earth. In other words, what we learn in a few moments in the presence of Christ in heaven will pale in comparison. I mean, what we know on earth will pale in comparison to those few minutes with him in heaven. And then we are told here in this verse that his name shall be on their foreheads. Do you remember the mark of the beast back in Revelation 13? That uh, those who were living during the time of the tribulation, the beast would rule them with an iron fist. Revelation 13, 16, he causes everyone to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And no one could buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name inscribed on them. Then in Revelation 14, we saw again as it's telling us about the torment of the beast, that no one could buy or sell without that mark in the name of the beast. That stands in stark contrast to what we see here. And we see in Revelation 2, verse 17, 
And on the stone that we are given a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. Revelation 3.1, we will have a new name that we are alive. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. You see, God will put on us his name. What does that mean? To have the tattoo of God's name on our head. It means that we are owned by him. And I don't know if anyone here has a tattoo. I, I have not been, you know, brave enough to do that. But, you know, it's permanent, right? I mean, they can be taken off, but it's very painful, very difficult. But think about having the name of God on your head. God marks in heaven that we are his. Why does he need to do that? I think he does it not out of need, but out of desire. He wants us to know that we belong to him. He's going to give us a reminder that every time, as it were, we look in the mirror, if there are mirrors there, that we'll be reminded, hey, I'm, I'm here. We'll probably be pinching ourselves going, is this real? Am I really here in the presence of God? Am I, am I tattooed? Am I labeled with the name of God? Is it, do I really belong to him? And remember John said, we just read it, that everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So I think it, it means that we are to now have the attitude, as it were, that we are already labeled by God. We already have his name upon us. You see, that's why I believe he gave us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a down payment, as a surety, because he will complete that which he began on the day of Christ Jesus. He has given us his Holy Spirit to signify to us that all of these things are going to happen. It, it, this, is, this is a promise. And John tells us that we have that promise and we fix our hope upon him. We belong to him. And here's the thing that it tells us. When we are in heaven and we have his name on us, there's a sense of permanency, right? That can never change. It never will change. We will forever belong to him. And then in verse 5 it says, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What will characterize our relationship with God in the eternal kingdom will be immediate access to God the Father and God the Son. I don't know about you, but now when I'm in a place where, you know, maybe I'm just sitting down to read or to pray or Maybe I'm sort of acutely aware of my lack and I seek the Lord or I need wisdom and guidance and I pray and I ask him to speak to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes it takes a while for me to quiet my soul to the place that I can hear the voice of God and just know that he is communing and fellowshipping with me. And that's never on him. That's always on me. I'm the one who's conflicted. I'm the one who's confused. I'm the one who is distracted and busy about so many things. I'm the one who needs to sit down so that I can hear his voice. But on that day in this place, we will forever be able to have access to God. We will be in such relationship with him 
that there will always be an immediacy to our access with him. And think about all the thousands, millions, even billions of people, however many it is, who will be there in heaven, in the heavenly city. Hasn't it ever baffled you? It does me to think, like we sit in the room and we have a prayer meeting and there's all these voices going up to heaven and I think, how can God hear that? Because I get, you know, when my kids were little, they'd come up and they'd all want to talk. I'm like, one at a time. Silence. You first, then you, then you. But God does not get overwhelmed. He does not get confused. He doesn't wonder whose voice is speaking. He can hear everything perfectly. And on that day, we will all have full access to him. You see, on that day, there will be no more curse. There will be perfect restoration. The throne will be in our midst. There will be perfect administration. The servants shall serve him. There shall be perfect subordination. We shall see his face. There shall be perfect transformation. His name will be on our foreheads. That's perfect identification. God will be the light. That's perfect illumination. He will be reigning forever. That is perfect exaltation. And this is the beginning of eternity for us who know Christ. The interesting thing here as we stop at verse 5 this morning uh, is that verse 6 forward is an epilogue to the book of Revelation. So really sort of the book of Revelation as we know it in a sense stops right here at verse 5, but from verse 6 forward, which we'll cover next week, it's an epilogue. It's the Lord Jesus speaking, giving us some further instructions. And so I encourage you to go ahead and read that because as he speaks next week, and you'll see the red, the red words there if you have a red letter Bible of the things that he speaks. He is admonishing his church. Remember, the book of Revelation was written to the church. So he is admonishing his church with some closing remarks. And just like when we studied the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus' voice to his church, he's coming back now at the end and he's giving us a punctuation to all of these things. So today I want to encourage you with something. And that's what we started uh, to consider at the beginning and that was the river of life. Do you have access to that river of life in your life? Are you drinking from the well that God gives? Are you drinking of that living water that he has promised to all who call upon his name? Have you believed in him? Do you have access to the promises of God? And as a believer, you do. If you don't know him, if you've never given your heart to him, then you don't, but you can. You can have that access right now by simply inviting him into your life and saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life and forgive me that I might know you in this way so that I can experience you on that day in your presence like it's being described here for us. You see, this is the hope that we have. What we're reading in chapters 21 and 22 is our eternal hope. So when the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, this is the finisher of our faith part of that verse, Revelation 21 and 22. So today, the river of life. God has blessed us. And I love how God is the initiator, man is the responder. And this morning, I hope and I pray that you are overwhelmed with the grace of God and the goodness of God. Amen. Lord, we love you.
We bless you this morning. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Lord, thank you for choosing us and thank you for allowing us to recognize who you are. And Lord, you tell us that you are proclaiming both from the heavens and from creation as well as from your word and through the lives of your people. You are constantly proclaiming your love, the opportunity, the life that is found in Christ, the forgiveness, the hope. And Lord, may we be clean and clear vessels through whom you can work, through whom you can speak. And Lord, pour out that living water in us. And as John described it in John 7, speaking the words of Jesus, may there be just a a gushing forth of a torrent of living water. And Lord, may we not impede or dam up that flow by our pride or our sin or our stubbornness or our self-will. But Lord, may we be clean and clear vessels. May we just be a conduit of your love and your grace and your mercy to the people and the world around us. Lord, fill us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. All right, let's stand up and sing. Sorry. My fault. song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, we live for you, God. We live for you, we live for you, God. Jesus, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes. 
indeed fill us with your love and lead us to the world around us in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.